All right, so we are recording. Okay, so good afternoon, everyone. My name is Gag Boyer. I am the current Eastern graduate representative of ABCI Student Circle, and I am here with Dr. Edwin J. Nichols. He is the, he is one of the founders of um, the Association of Black Psychologists. He's also the leader, the leadership development co-chair. He is a clinical slash industrial psychologist, and he received his PhD um, in psychology and psychiatry, cum laude, from uh, in, in Austria. And how do you pronounce the, the name of the university? Innsbruck. Innsbruck. Yeah, I definitely. Brook. Yeah. Innsbruck. Innsbruck. No, Brook. Oh, in, Innsbruck. Yes. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I'll just describe a little bit of what the Simba Simbi podcast is, and then we can begin. So um, basically, we're going to uh, each of the members of the student circle are just basically interviewing, you know, one of the elders, one of the legends of ABCI, and really just to have this documented. And so other people could really just um, know about, you know, these legends and just know a little bit um, and just learn about their theories and what they've done and any future directions to carry their legacy forward. So I'm really, really, really honored and grateful to be talking to um, Dr. Nichols here. Um, I was fortunate enough to actually meet him in person. Do, I mean, unfortunately due to COVID, we couldn't be, do this in person, but um, you know, he's a really intelligent man. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, ready to get started. So do you have anything that you wanna share Dr. Nichols? Well, I would be very glad to uh, share any of the concepts and ideas that would be of interest to you. What do you think would be of most interest to the organization? Yeah, so one, we're, def we're definitely going to talk about your um, the physical, the philosophical aspects of cultural difference. I still have uh, the paper you gave me the, all those years back when I when I stopped by. Um, that was really that like that the whole the way you like just broke it down was really amazing. Um, I also do want to talk about just your your journey in becoming a doctor and all the um, all the trials and tribulations you went through. I I read your section of the history of association by psychologists. So for anyone that wants to know about like legends and just and just the history of ABC, I really recommend getting this book. It's by Robert Williams, and um, you can get this on Amazon. Um, Dr. Nichols, his bio is, is in here, and, and a bunch of other legends in here. So I was reading through this and I'm like, wow, you went through, you went through a lot. You know, you, you, you really grinded as far as, you know, establishing who you are as a psychologist. You know, um, you said, uh, I was just quoting you, you met racism at every turn, you know, trying to do what you have to do, you know, getting your um, graduate degrees in Europe, you know, like that's, that's different in itself, you know, speaking German fluently and, and people, you know, kind of dismissing you thinking that, or, or under, or even underestimated you of your, you know, fluency in German and things like that. So we could talk, I, I really want to talk about, you know, just your, your, um, I guess how you got to where you are. And then we could definitely talk about, uh, the, the, phys, the, phys, the, phys, the philosophical aspects of cultural differences. So, um, yeah. So, uh, while I was reading, you know, your section, you know, the fact that, you know, your grandparents were both, were both born as slaves. Um, and that's really, and that's really, you know, kind of mind blowing. The fact that we still have people here, it's still in 2021, whose whose immediate relatives and family members were, were slaves, you know. So, so how how was that? And um, growing up, you know, you're also saying that you felt safe and affirmed as a child because 
you were, because um, everything was black, being being born in Detroit and how everything was in 1930. So can you tell me, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, um, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and we are longtime Detroiters. Uh, my mother graduated from Cass Tech in 1924, and her older sister went to Detroit before World War One. This was, uh, she immigrated, she made a migration out of Kentucky. So you have a, a group of uh, Blacks that go to Detroit. You have a group of Blacks that have always been in Detroit. And of course, when slavery, when the Civil War was going on, you had an increased number that were in Detroit. And then when the, um, uh, when the act was passed that you could retrieve slaves, um, then a lot of them left and went across the river into Windsor and stayed there for a while. And then when slavery was over, they came back. But the reality is Detroit, I was born in 1931. And so Detroit at that time and earlier had always been a closed and contained ghetto for black people. And what that said was you had two extremes in the same ghetto. You had people that uh, had poor, poor jobs, living on welfare, all kinds of things like that. And then you had another element of, of Blacks who had a job and had an apartment or rented a room or something like that. Now, because the ghetto is contained, uh, it, it will not expand. Mm. As you get more people coming from the South, instead of being able to get apartments and so on in other areas in the city. They couldn't do that. Everything was contained. So it says that what was originally a six-room apartment now becomes two three-room apartments. And so I'm going to explain to you the idea of systemic institutional white racism. My father smoked cigars and he smoked them for so long that even when you washed his t-shirts, his undershirts in Clorox, you put them in the drawer, you could still get a whiff of cigar smoke in them. So if you think of cigar smoke throughout a whole house, every room of the house, you can smell it. That's systemic. That's what systemic means. It's, it permeates everything. And when you say systemic institutional, well, each room is an institution, the institution of, of the city code, the institution of the schools, the institution. So each of those rooms in essence is an institute. And then white privilege gives the division in spite of this permeated system and privilege gives white privilege. So let me give you an example of that. We were very fortunate. Uh, my sister was, is four years younger. So she was a small baby. I was just four, bare, barely four. And we moved into an apartment, a three-room apartment. Now it had been a six-room apartment. So if it had been six rooms, you have a bathroom only in one part of the building, of the apartment. And so when they divided it, the part of the building that was to the north had the bathroom. 
So now you have a bedroom, a living room, and a kitchen, but you don't have a bathroom. So what had previously been a, a storage closet for trunks, they used to have these big wardrobe trunks, they had to have somewhere to store them. So this was a storage room. And in this storage room, they converted it into a bathroom. So the kind of triangular shape face bowl fit into a corner, a toilet, and a four-foot bathtub. Wow. Now, let's talk about systemic. The code in Michigan and in Detroit requires that a bathroom be vented Mm, yeah, and you, you mentioned that okay. as well. Yep, and they had a, right. the holes. Yes, mm -hmm. that is, it has to be vented. Now, if they sunk a shaft down a closet, it would take up too much room and you couldn't have a bathroom. So how did they vent it? I, 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 I always tell this, they, a white man came to our door. Now, this tells you how many white people you see that I consider it was a white man. And he said... He had come to do some carpentry and my mother said, okay. And he said, well, just a moment, I have to go downstairs and get my horses. Now, when you're three and a half, four years old, a horse is a horse. I didn't know it was it's something that you place planks on in the carpentry to, to saw things on or do things on. He brought those upstairs. He took the door off the hinges. He drilled three one-inch holes in the top, three one-inch holes in the bottom and put the door back on the hinges and that was a, what the, the, you see, systemic institutional white racism. The system racist permitted the, the code, the, the room in the, in the building, the code department at, at uh, Michigan Health Society, Health and, and Human Resources, permitted this to be a vented bathroom. So the, any odors that were in the bathroom just came out into the living room. Now, that's the best example I can give you of systemic institutional white racism. Another example is how crowded were black people at this time in that environment. Um, if you had three bedrooms, you would put a, you'd put a family in each bedroom. So it's a mother and father and two children in one bedroom. Three bedrooms is three sets of four is 12. The dining room was partitioned with a curtain and a couple slept on a couch there. So that's four, eight, 12, and two is 16. And a man slept on the couch that worked all night. He slept on the couch during the day. There was only one bathroom and one kitchen. Can you imagine what the situation was trying to manage that environment? You know, that's and this is what happened up to and including World War II. The restrictive covenants for Michigan finally were broken in about 1951. And Blacks were able to move all over the city. And of course, whites moved out to the suburbs. So what I'm sharing with you is that was the reality of that time. Now, how Black people lived was according to their, their desires. Okay, I was given dance very early, but I'm black, so I had to go to Windsor to get it. The fencing and the horseback riding were both in Windsor because I couldn't get it in Detroit being black. But now in terms of piano lessons, I had black teachers for piano and organ starting when I was five years old. 
So anything that could be accomplished within the ghetto, we used the ghetto to do it. But when we had to go out, luckily, Windsor was just across the river. I could go across there and get a lot of things. That's where I went to undergraduate school. Now, I share those things with you because I want you to understand the, the horror of living and the trauma of living in a ghetto. So you ask me now, well, why are Black people shooting each other and killing each other and all these kinds of things? It's still because many sections of our city are of ghetto, are a ghetto, and have all of the police atrocities, and poor housing, poor food, poor lead, all these different things that you can find are part of that ghetto part of the city. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate, but those are the areas in which we have that. Now, as a psychologist, we should be very interested in the fact that many of these young men who are involved in criminal behavior, shooting, killing, more not selling dope, but shooting and killing each other, when you look at the lead content in their body, it's too high. Mm. It's too high. Now, why is that lead paint? These old buildings. Lead water, water in the- like Water that. lines, lead, you see? So we have to think in terms of why things are happening, not just to say they're happening and count and measure that it's happening, but the question is, why is it happening? Um, I went to a, a very privileged um, elementary school. It had been all white before, and now when blacks moved in years later, it was all black. We had, uh, now they have what they have is a combined room for your auditorium, your lunchroom, and your gymnasium. It's all one combined place. Well, at that time, these things were separate. We had a separate auditorium where you did play and stage. We had a separate gymnasium for all activities and a separate swimming pool. One of the few elementary schools in the city that had a swimming pool. So it meant that our children learned to swim, had all these activities, activities of plays on stages and so forth. Now it was time to go to junior high school. The junior high school in the ghetto was where you had children from all areas coming and the, it, there were a lot of fights and the, the grade point average was very low and all the other things. So the city permitted a selected group to be transferred to schools in white neighborhoods, okay? So I was transferred from Balch Elementary to McMichael um, Intermediate uh, Junior High School. When I got there, it was working class whites Mm -hmm. and um, a few blacks that lived on quote, the West side. Those were blacks who owned their homes, very small ghetto on the West side, kind of, these are blacks that probably both parents would have been college educated in the South, came North, couldn't get a job in their chosen fields, but worked on post office or something. It gave them a good study job and they bought homes in that small area. Now, what happened there, that was my first encounter with black, uh, with white children. And um, I think that's where I developed my attitude of being a snob. It's terrible to say, but I really got to be a snob there because they weren't clean. Mm. When you go to take your clothes off at at gym, you'd see things you would horrify you in terms of their underwear and so on. They didn't want to shower. They just, uh, and they weren't that bright. You know, we we always had this, you know, how bright white children, uh, they weren't at all. So my attitude changes then in terms of dealing with whites. I always saw them as as less than, 
Now that's because I'm dealing with my peer group. When you have to deal with adults, you have to do, you have to uh, code switch in order to be accommodating. Okay. Now at high school, I went to high school. My dad had asthma and we left Detroit and went out to Salt Lake City, Utah for his health because the air at that time was a very high content of salt in the air that kind of dries the lungs and makes it easier for him to breathe. But let me tell you, that was a quite an experience for Nichols. There were three high schools in the city. I went to register for my high school and the teacher said, um, I mean, the clerk said, uh, what, what is your address? I said, 355 E7 uh, South. And 255 E7 South. She said, oh, that's East High School. I said, what's the academic high school? She said, that's East. I said, well, I'll go to East. <laughs> well, um, uh, you might be more comfortable at West. I said, well, why would I be more comfortable at West? Well, there are more of your kind there. I said, well, how many of my kind are there there? She looked at the other clerk. She said, that's a lot. What is it? I think it's 11 or 12. I said, well, I'll see all 11 or 12 on one Saturday weekend. So <laughs> I went to East High expecting to find at least one or two, but I was the only one, the only one they had ever had. And this was an all Mormon, almost 99% Mormon high school. So I didn't experience racism in that way, but because they were all Mormon, all of their social activities were connected to the Mormon church and you would have been excluded from, from that. But luckily for me, my daddy's church, an AME church was out there, Trinity AME, and everybody black went either to Trinity AME or the, the two Baptist churches that had split in the one Seventh-day Adventist church. <laughs> so we had those four churches and I was very happy in Trinity AME played the um, piano for the junior choir and all kinds of things like that. It was a wonderful experience because it balanced and gave me some black options. Now, in terms of a job, I had always worked in Detroit as a clerk in, um, um, in a hardware store since I was 13. Now, I, was, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was the first black clerk to be able to ring the cast register and rate the clerk in any of the any of the stores, groceries, um, drugstore, hardware store, anything around there, I was the first in that area. I didn't realize it at the time. But having had that experience when I went out to Salt Lake, um, the only job that I could get was a shine boy. And I had to shine shoes. And I would now, they were very protective of me, the guys, the uh, black guys there. So instead of putting me on the shoeshine stand where you had six or seven people in comp competition with them, they arranged for me to be in a building. So I was the only shine boy in the building and I had to clean the barbershop. So I cleaned up the barbershop and on Saturday, this man let me have all, he didn't take any of my tips or anything. He just, just made sure I clean up the barbershop. So that's what I did in my senior year. When I came back to Detroit, I went back to the hardware store and worked. Now, the reason I'm telling you all these things is because these are experiences that you have and you have to deal with different types of people and you have to deal with people who have a, a, an entrenched prejudice against you because at that time, Mormon, the Blacks could not enter the Mormon church. We were considered to be the descendants of Ham and we were marked or some horrible thing. Now, when I now start into college, I'm starting into college at a time when I know that my parents will not be able to, to pay for me to have tuition. So I take 
I graduate high school a year early and I take that year to go to Lewis Business College in Detroit, which was a, a black woman running a business college. And I learned to type 60 words a minute, take shorthand 120 words a minute, do bookkeeping and filing and all those different things because with those skills, I could work at college or I could work on a, on a, in, a, in a hotel night shift or something like that and do the bookkeeping and I was able to do anything. Well, in 1950, we start the Korean War and my battalion, the 1279th Combat Engineer Battalion is called to active duty, all black battalion, black officers. And we are supposed to go to Korea. We are shipped to Fort Lewis, Washington. When we get there, Truman has said, the army has to break up. You can't have all black anything. Well, they didn't want to break us up because we had black officers. And that meant that black officers would be over white troops in combat and white officers that were beneath them in rank. For the first time in American history, we didn't know who would kill whom. So they kept all of us little black guys at Fort Lewis, Washington. But we had to, they had to have something to do with us. So the South, all the states in the country had a quota for the draft. So many men have to go from your state. The South filled all of their quotas with black guys take them right out of college anywhere. And the quota was always black. So you have all these black guys coming to Fort Lewis, Washington. And how are we gonna deal with them? What are we gonna do with them? So the 1279th Combat Engineer Battalion became a training battalion. And so all these blacks came through our battalion, trained and then shipped to Korea. At the end of the year, they had to do something with us. So they shipped us to Germany for occupation because Germany still had um, occupied troops. They still had black segregated units in Germany at that time. Now that was my first experience uh, out of country other than Canada, okay? It was an interesting experience. Uh, it was different. And for the first time I got to uh, go to all the operas that I wanted to go to and attend because for almost nothing compared to your American salary or a couple packs of cigarettes, you could get a perfect opera seat. So all the operas that I had wanted to see that would come only once a year to Detroit, the Metropolitan Opera came for one week to Detroit and I could only afford one ticket for one opera, but here I could go uh, as long as, as many times as I wanted to. And I could also go to symphonies and concerts. So I, my classical background in that sense was nurtured and I enjoyed it. In terms of the army experiences, now here you get to racism again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as a kid, we were all Detroiters. We were smart as hell. We knew we were smart and we didn't care what the white boys said. We were smarter, we were better. Okay, that was it. We built a treadway bridge across the Rhine River in 1951, and nobody has beaten that record in all these years. Okay. Mm -hmm. We were determined to win every single record that there was. We even uh, won the VD, the venereal disease. If your, your battalion has no venereal disease reported for one month, you get a, a banner that hangs on your, on your staff, of, uh, on your flagstaff. So we even won that one, okay? 
Now, the reason I'm sharing that with you is because we were, we were always like being stared at and compared with. So we always felt that we had to be better. Mm-hmm. And we were. We were. We won everything. Now, what happens is we are battalion, but over us is an organization called a corps. They have a full colonel and several lieutenant colonels. Our highest ranking officer was a lieutenant colonel. That's what a battalion is. So these guys were from Tennessee and they were really, really from Tennessee. So every time they could do something to mark us down, they would do it. At this time, my best friend is the Sergeant Major and I'm in charge of all the personnel records. So I know how white people act. So every night, when the mail came in from the core, our mail, I would go through it very quickly to see if there was anything that needed to be updated in our records or whatever. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. I remember this part. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now the 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 inspecting general was coming tomorrow morning. I'm going through this stuff, looking, and all of a sudden I see something that we should have gotten it two weeks earlier, which says. In every, uh, every uh, uh, folder, identification folder of uh, each individual, you have to put his ID number in and have him sign it. Well, it's dinner time. I raise at dinner. The officers say, oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to get it done? We take all night. I said, no, I'll show you how to do it. And that's when I use my training from... Lewis Business College in Detroit. I took a stencil and I typed on that stencil all the information was supposed to be on there. I took some gauze and some uh, mimeograph ink and put it on there and made a stamp because if you just press it down like that on the, on, the, on the record, you got all the information. Guys would line up. I said, line them up by company alphabetically. When they came, all the records were in alphabetical order. We just wrote down the number of ID, and then as we had written that down, they sign it, we put it back in the folder. The next morning, the inspector general comes, and he's a real car, and he says, oh, you boys, I've been looking at these records. Y'all just got things in good order here. Well, now, that's a general, and this is a colonel under him, okay, this white one. This colonel knows that we didn't get the information in time. So how in the hell do we got all this done? Oh. Okay. So he's, he keeps asking, well, uh, are you sure, General, that everything's in? He said, yeah, sure. So and he asked about two or three times, and the General gets annoyed. And he says, why are you asking? This guy doesn't say anything. And I pipe up. I say, because we received the orders last night that we should have received two weeks ago. They came last night into last night's mail. that colonel turned purple and the general looked at him and he said, come out here with me into the hall. Now he didn't need to go to the hall because you could hear him all over the building. He gave him the riot act, okay? And from that point on, we had to be very careful of anything that came because they were always trying to do something to us or trick us. Now that's the time that I had that. When the only time uh, all the troops left, and I was one of the last people to leave with fine lines and records and so on. And this was the first time that white officers came into our battalion. The officers already had gone home. And to tell you how the white officers were, 
This one demanded that I have receipts for my clothing. And if I didn't have a receipt for my clothing other than the original army issue of two, a year and a half earlier, he wanted to take it away from me. And of course, he, he's supposed to be in the right because he's a, he's a captain. He's telling me what he's going to do with my clothing. And I said, would you please show me the regulation, the special order that says you're entitled to, the, I'm captain, I'm blah, blah. I said, well, if you are all those things that you say you are, you must be able to back it up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now he did everything dirty he could do to held up everything that he could. I finally got out of there, but that was my first experience with white officers. And if I had been subjected to them, like the guys were in Korea and other places, I would have had a horrible experience in the military. Okay. Now it's time to come back to go to school. I go to Assumption College, which is across the river from Detroit, Catholic Men's College. Um, there are, there's one Canadian black who knows, grew up over there. Um, Brilliant guy, excellent credits, everything. And now to show you the color situation. One of the guys coming from Detroit, we hitchhike across the Ambassador Bridge. It's cold as the devil up there, particularly in the winter when it's zero outside and that wind is blowing. Mm. And rather than to get into the car with me to ride across as two, two of us hitchhiking, he would stand on the bridge and wait for another car to take him. Now, the reason was I was too dark for him to associate with. Okay, he was like passing, not really passing, but there's a class, there's a distinction in of colorism among blacks. And this was a distinction. He had acolyne features, straight hair, and fair skin, neither of which I had. Okay, so you deal with that because that's within your own race, but you can imagine how I felt about that situation and trying to look at him every day and knowing how he would avoid and, and what have you. As it turns out, I'm the, uh, the, the uh, assistant, I'm the number two guy for the editor of the, of the yearbook, okay? And uh, now to let you know quietly how subtle things are done, when you see my picture in the yearbook, it looks like I might, you can't tell who I am, okay? And instead of spelling it the, friend, the English way, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, they spell it with two L's. So, you, it, you know, it, it's a confusion. You don't know, is he French Canadian? What are you? So these are things that are done to, to neutralize or to make negative our reality. Now, now it's time to go to college, to graduate school. University of Michigan, Michigan State have the best programs in industrial psychology, which is a two-year uh, master's level program. One of their qualifications is you must do one year in a firm and you do your practicum at the end of it you've improved their output and productivity so much that they give you a job and you say is it as a vice president they say yes and is it with stock so it's a real capitalistic thing i'm already feeling behind because i have um i had to go to the military so i'm trying to catch up with my my classmates the universities in the north don't tell you they don't want you in certain programs or they don't want you they just put obstacles in your way. In the South, they say, go to the colored college. That's it. Okay. So what did they do? They said, you have to do a one-year practicum. All right. I'm obligated to do the one-year practicum. In 1955, there was not one company, one factory in all of Michigan that would give Black Nichols the one-year practicum. None. 
instead of the university saying, we will find you a practicum, what did they say? They said, uh, in that you could not fulfill the requirements for graduation, it would be unfair of us to accept you into the program. So they didn't accept me because I couldn't fulfill the requirements for graduation. 20 years later, when I was a visiting professor at the University of Ibadan, Nigeria, and Ibo came through from Michigan State with a PhD in uh, organizational psychology. I asked him, how did he get it? He said, the only way he got the practicum is one of his classmates graduated and said to him, come to my company and do your one-year practicum in my company. This is 20 years. What if I'd stayed there? You see? So when Blacks have been confronted with these kinds of things, Southern Blacks are sent by the state to Columbia College to get a master's in something, or University of Michigan and something like that. The, the state will pay for it rather than to send you to their own universities. In the North, Black people have to take it upon themselves to send their children to Europe. A lot of people go to France. And those are the people in political science, art, and things like that. My group are the people who are doing technical things. We were primarily sent to Germany. So if someone said they graduated from Aachen, that was a technical, that was a engineering school. If they said Heidelberg, they probably studied medicine. So I was sent to Tübingen to study under Kretschmer and Kretschmer had been a Nazi. Not a big Nazi, but a pretty good sized Nazi, okay? Mm -hmm. Where did I do my practicum? He had companies that did, he did practicums with them. Mercedes-Benz, how, how's that for a practicum? Yeah, I read it. That was actually really, that was really cool. Yeah, and Zeiss Icon, the biggest camera company in the world at that time. Now, the I didn't have issues in Germany as being black. Okay, like a, a lot of people have now. And the reason was Germany is a very class conscious society. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't, class doesn't mean wealth. We have a lot of people in this country that have millions of dollars, but they have no class. You, you see the difference? Mm -hmm. So your class can be that you can come from a middle-class family, but if you have the class, you're accepted into the upper class because you have the, you have the standards. When I got ready to go to Germany to school, my father took me downtown and bought me a 100% cashmere overcoat. I had never had a 100% cashmere stockings or socks or, or scarf. And I asked my dad, I said, Daddy, why are you buying this? He said, when you get there, you'll understand. And of course, when I got there and the first clerk that, you know, the waiters to take your coat, First time they touched that coat, my, chain, my, my table changed from the one that's right by the door where the people coming in and out, you know, from the kitchen to some very more exclusive place. Now, that was, that was my experience. And I enjoyed it because it said to me, if you are attuned, in other words, if you are acculturated uh -huh. into European society, you will be assimilated. So I was acculturated. I could do fencing and horseback riding and piano playing and all this other crap. And 
that meant I was acculturated. I could speak the language. I knew the grammar, to whom and from whom, and all those kinds of things rather than who, 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 okay? And with that, my friends of a certain class assimilated me into their group. I went to very expensive homes. I went to some very humble homes and I made good friends. And I have two friends that came uh, from Germany from 1955, my classmates, on my 80th birthday. Wow. <laughs> so it was really good to see Hans and Hermann. We had a good time. I had friends from all over the country, everywhere, but those two came. Now I share that with you because if you ask me how many white friends I have in this country, I can't count any from undergraduate school, nothing from places where I've worked. I worked at the National Institute of Mental Health for 20 years. Yep. Which of the people there do I have as a close white friend? None. Okay. The one time I invited a group of workers to my house, we had we have people that review grants and that cycle was going off and we needed to do something to celebrate them. So I had a small dinner party at my home for them. And of course the other staff members came. The first questions they ask are, well, where did you get this? And how long have you had this? And they're going all through my house asking about different things. And finally, I just had headed up to here. And uh, so the next guy asked me about the China, something he saw on the table. And I just said, oh, that's grandmother's Havlund. Doesn't everyone's grandmother have Havlund to pass down to them? <laughs> I just, again, I don't want to be vulgar, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Now, these experiences of racism can be subtle and they can be overt. When I went to get the job at the National Institute of Mental Health, the reason I got it was because the psychiatric Black Caucus of Psychiatrists. I read about that. Mm -hmm. Okay. They were the ones that said, somebody, we got to put some Black people in there. And they said, you know, who's got all the papers? Nichols, put Nichols in there. Okay. I had all these European papers. Okay. So when I apply, I apply five times. They, I, they pay for me to fly from Cleveland, Ohio to Washington, DC, five times for the job. Now who gets five interviews for a job, okay? The final thing was um, an affront, when I think of it. They, well, I was in Bertram Brown's office and a man walked in and Bertram Brown said, oh, here is Herr Dr. Plout. He's going to take you to lunch. Now, if you say Herr Dr. Plout, what is your assumption about Herr Dr. Plout? He must be what? German. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just Dr. Plout. And Dr. Plout came over, extended his hand, and he said, Guten Tag, Herr Dr. Nichols. Well, he's speaking to me in German. So I extend my hand. And I say, guten tag, Herr Dr. Plow. And we start down the hall to go to lunch. And German grammar is so specific that in about that much time, he had made two grammatical errors. And I said, oh, 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 oh. Either he's not very well educated or something is correct because this grammar is not correct. When we got to get to the lunch, 
he doesn't know the name of all the vegetables in German. Mm. Okay? He doesn't know. Okay? So I'm angry at this point because I'm saying, I finally realize what they're doing. They're credentialing my capacity to speak okay. German. They want to speak someone out. who, his parents were German, but he, he never lived in Germany. He doesn't know German. He didn't write a dissertation in German. He didn't attend lectures in German. He didn't treat psycho, uh, psych, psychotic patients in different dialects of German. You can't ask a Swabish guy who speaks Swabish to speak standard German when he's psychotic. You have to learn how to speak Swabish, the dialect. Yeah. Okay. When I did things in Switzerland, I had to learn the Swiss dialect. When I was in Austria, I had to learn the Tyrolean dialect. Because these patients that come in, they're speaking their own dialect. And if you can't help them, if you can't speak their dialect. So now, I, you know, the evil part comes in. This is the black, you know, what comes out. I'm about to get him. I'm going to get him. No. So I say to him, Ah, oh, ich habe mein, mein Geschirr vergessen. Oh, I forgot my flatware. Pass her to me. Now he knows knife, fork, and spoon, but he doesn't know which one is masculine, feminine, or neuter. So the first that he handed to me was not her. I said, ach, not him, her. Okay, so you've got it and you got her. <laughs> and he messed up again. Then in complete frustration, nine. And then I said, pass the fork to me. Okay? Now he insists that I give him what I'm going to do if I become chief of child and family mental health. And he wants it in German because he asks for it in German. He starts speaking to me in German. Mm -hmm. I give it to him. And he gets to a point where he says, in English, I don't understand. The evil part comes back out in me. And I say, fine, I'm going to fix your ass. So instead of just, you know, just conversational German, I lift it right on up to university level and I give him a paragraph, a whole paragraph that long. And then finally the verb at the end. And I sit there and like his mind can't click it all together. He said, can we do this in English? I said, oh, yes, English is my mother tongue. I have no problem with English. Hmm? Now, look at that. And then there was another time. I'm going to tell you these times because these are things that that you can lose a job if you don't know how to overcome it. Yeah, and I, I just want to just jump in and just like, because like reading it, because I was, I was reading it, I'm just like, yeah, they're really just checking your credentials. And you kind of, you said it multiple times, the game. And that's, and that's really what it is. Like you have to play the game, understanding that they're just looking for anything to just knock you down, anything to, to disqualify you, anything to, uh, you're not qualified because you... You couldn't hold this simple conversation in German, like anything. And it's, it's really, I can see how it can be frustrating because you hold yourself to such a high standard to just be qualified or barely, or just, just to, just to be in that, just to be, you know, just to have that conversation with that person and they can't even keep up. And it's just like, if the roles were reversed, you know, how, how would that be? You know, and the thing is, is that's the privilege, that's the white privilege. You know, they don't have to think about you know, trying to be at that kind of level because they know they're already accepted. They know that that person already has them. And like, when I was reading that, I'm just like, yeah, like this guy, you know, he, he's German by blood, but he didn't, you you were more um, culturally oriented to the culture. His, his parents were German and he was born here. 
yeah, like yeah, it's like he was German by blood, like his yeah. family was, but like he he he's in America, so it's it's just and in the and I really appreciate how like you navigate that with, with such class, you know, and and I think that's part of the game, being able to like still check them, but still do it in a in a in a subtle professional way, but still kind of like saying like, hey, listen. I know my stuff and you're not going to play me. And so I really appreciate like how you're able to navigate that with like with, with such class. Let me give you the end to that story with him. Then I'll give you one other story at NIMH when I was, when they were trying to credential me. Okay. You're with the high school student, right? The end of his story with him. Okay. Uh-huh. Was uh, on Jewish holidays. Everybody's out of the building. He's Jewish and he's running around the building on the holiday and coming out of Detroit there's a close bond between blacks and Jews in Detroit. And blacks were always trying to get that Jews would not be penalized for their holidays, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that they could get paid and take off the time, just like Christians did for Christians and Easter and so on. And the, as a coalition, all of the two of us pushed together to make that possible. Now, this is a Jewish holiday, everybody's out of the building and he's running around the building. And I saw him and I said, uh, I said, why, why are you here? And he looked at me, he said, um, how does he say it? I said, I'm non, um, uh, non-conformant. He said, I'm, I'm not, a, um, well, I'm blocking, I'm sort of conformant. No, it's not conforming. What is it? See the blocking? That's how angry I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an observant Jew. Okay. And then I told him in German, I said, the Führer hat diese Unterscheidung nicht gemacht. Hitler did not make that distinction mm. between observant Jews and any other Jew. They were all Jews. They were all, yep. So I stuck it to him. Okay. Now, in that first month that I was there, they spent a whole week talking about what child and family mental health the programs that we would undertake. At the end of the week, we've everybody's worked well, they're closing down and what have you. And you know, every organization has their in-house bulldog. Well, at NIMH, they had this Polish guy, he was their bulldog. Now you know how the Germans hate the Poles, but anyway, he was their in-house, in-house boy, okay? Mm-hmm. He said in the, in the meeting, you know, you have a lot of ideas and understanding of child mental health, but um, the Germans don't know anything about statistics. Now, what is he doing? He's Shot trying you, yeah. to devalue mm-hmm. my education. I said, oh, Wienkowski. See, I called his name in German. Instead of Winkowski, I called him Wienkowski. Okay. I said, what are you talking about? I said, the German have excellent statistical evaluations and ex- excellent experimental design. Let me give you a problem. The Luftwaffe pilots were being shot down over the North Sea. And the question was, can you get a boat out to them fast enough that they don't freeze to death and die or that their brain from the freezing is so badly damaged that they can't fly anymore? I said, that was the issue. Now, how do you think they went about doing the experiment. Now you got all these people around here, a lot of them are Jews, they're all sitting around this table. I see how you answer it. 
Yes. So he, he did not answer it. So when I told him, okay, well, let me tell you, a woman psychologist, now this is to use, hear the sexism in there, was given this uh, task. She filled a swimming pool with water, the same saline solution as the North Sea, same temperature as the North Sea. And then they put the experimentees into the water and froze them at different degrees and so forth. At the brain cutting, they were able to see how much damage and so forth. Everybody's horrified. He says, oh, they were probably Poles. I said, oh, you know nothing about genetics. I said, do you think that a, a Pole would have the genetic code and health standards of a German Luftwaffe boiler? I said, even if we looked at your teeth, you were raised here. Look at your teeth. Uh. You don't have the, 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 what is that? The, you don't have the nutritional standard of a German Luftwaffe pilot. So that took care of that. But all along, every time something would come up, somebody would be trying to check me out. Now, here's the other thing that I want the group to know, and then I'll talk about anything else you want to talk about. I do so well. Now, first of all, they don't want to give me any money to run the little center, okay, child and family. Finally, I'm insisting that one person sitting over here has the money. He should be brought and put in my center with the money. Uh -huh. They don't want to do it. So I have to write a letter asking for that to take place. The people that were above me, I knew how they argued. They used the Talbudic argument. Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said that, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said that. And that's how they argue. And you can lose an argument. That's like our court system. That's why some people that went to the shiva as young Jews do so well in law because they are capable of understanding how to battle what, 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 what judge said this, what judge said this, what judge said this. And they are very good at that, good memories for it because they come out of the shiva where it was rabbi so-and-so said this and rabbi so-and-so said this. Mm -hmm. I couldn't beat that argument. And what does that mean? And, and what kind of argument is that again? From the Talmud. The Talmudic argument, their book, their book, their, their Talmud. Okay, so it's a Talmudic argument. Now, what I did was to use a form I knew they wouldn't understand and had never seen as a logics form. I used from the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas's structure for arguments. You set up straw men, you give their argument, you defeat their argument, you give your own straw man. You answer, they give a question, you give an answer over here, but there's a lot of sewing that goes in between. So I set up the whole thing about hegemony and all the things that they were talking about I would be doing, and then I beat them all down. Mm. I sent the correspondence up. The man who was my, who was division head has to send it to the Institute. He's acting at this level. He wants to be division head, not acting, but division head. When he sends the correspondence up, they can't answer it because they know they can't answer it. They have to give me what I want. So what they do is they tell him, if you want to be director, withdraw his correspondence so that it never gets up to them to force them to make an answer. That's what they did, and he got to be the director. Now, see, there's, there's all kinds of gameplay. 
-hmm. In spite of all that, on 60 Minutes, I'm two times on 60 Minutes talking about child and family mental health. If you look in Life Magazine, there's an article about Dr. Nichols, Dr. Nichols, and, and families, father, physicians of, fa of families and um, the position of fathers, young fathers and their families, okay? The man who writes the article comes to my house, takes pictures of the children and everything. He's really excited about it. When the article comes out, it says, Dr. Nichols, Dr. Nichols, Dr. Nichols, there's not one picture of me or my family in there. Oh, that was on purpose. Yep. Not one picture. Now, you see Dr. Nichols do three times in the article. Dr. Nichols of the National Association said, but you don't see a picture of Dr. Nichols. So I, I share these things with you because there'll be a lot of times when you are do something and you don't get it, but you can't let it destroy you. You have to just let it go. You can complain about it if you want to, or you can just say, okay, this is another experience. I've got, I've got you know, that's one for my adult. But for younger generations, they're not accepting all these kinds of things. And that's why you're getting the suits and the other things that you have. So if there are any other questions that you want to ask me or any other part of my things that you want to ask, I'll be glad to talk it over with you. Yeah, no, like, honestly, I just really appreciate everything that you shared. You know, um, like, you, it's like you went through what you shared in, in the book, kind of like how you just verbally said, and I'm like, oh, my, yeah, I remember reading that. I remember reading that. I remember reading that. And there was another one where um, I took a note, like it was like in 1961, it was like the GM school in Flint. And it was like, you were extremely qualified, but they, they rejected you because they were like, you knew better than to apply. You are a Negro. Yes. And, and it was just like, it's crazy how it's just like, because you're extremely, you know, qualified a lot, like just everything that you're doing, you know, just all, this, all the work you've done in Europe. And it's just crazy how you can have everything down to a T and they'll still say no, just because of your skin and no other reason, like, like literally no other reason, like not because you showed up late, not because you didn't get this degree, not because you didn't get this experience, anything you had to get or achieve, you did. And it was, eh, it's like, they had no other thing to default back to just, you're black. So no. And it's just like, it's frustrating how, and, but it's, it's still, it's so commendable how you're able to still persevere and still push forward with everything you've done and accomplished. Like, it's just, it's, it's really respect. Like, you know, I, it's, 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 it's amazing. And not a lot of people have that grit and that perseverance and that willpower and that discipline to continue pushing forward. But, um, you know, hearing your story, just like hearing, hearing your story shared it is, is, is a license fire under me. And hopefully, individuals that that watch this podcast are like yo like don't give up you know even though you are qualified and they reject you keep going you know like it's not yeah. it's not that you're not good it's just you know it's a system let me, let me share something with you one of the things that i do and i have about 50 dissertations showing that i've done it mm. i take young black men just like you get to the point where they start, every time you write a chapter, they change it or turn it over, they write it, and, and they extend the time that you're writing your dissertation. And men, black guys get frustrated, and they just say, quit. And they are ABD, all but the dissertation. I don't have any of those. Mm -hmm. When I find that you're in that situation, somebody tells you, call Dr. Nichols, they come here and spend a weekend, 
I had one guy from Puerto Rico spend two weeks, but when he turned his dissertation in, there was nothing they could do other than turn the page and read it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's 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 where that's where I make my my biggest contribution. That's where I'm I'm happiest about my contribution. I prepare them for the orals. Mm -hmm. I will tell you when you tell me who's on your committee. I'll look to see what they wrote, what have you. And I tell you, be sure you read every damn thing that they wrote. Mm. So you can quote them back to themselves. There's nothing worse than uh, um, a student that quotes you on some question that you ask the student. You can't say it's wrong because you're quoting him. Exactly. Mm. See, and like, and that's the thing, like, like, you know the game, and 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 that's I feel like that's how you, I feel like that's how you're able to like to sustain your career for so much. Like I remember reading something else in the book. It was talking about like you were sitting at a T-shaped table and you were asking for the fruit, and uh, they were like, "Oh, pass Dr. Nichols the, the grapes," and you're like, "Oh no, I don't have my my shear my grape shears or something like that." <laughs> and and then and then it was just like that was a test, you know, because they were seeing like if you were like for the for the class thing and me i would have just got the grapes <laughs> you know like like that's that's part of the whole cultural and class thing but you were able to un you understood the game and you played it so well and i think and i think that's why you were able to just to like to persevere because not just to to make it for yourself but like you knew the game and you weren't gonna let anybody stop you and um i i like that's like reading that is just like you know I like I'm, I can complain, you know, I can be mad about certain situations, but I can't I can't give up. You know, I can't not not, you know, keep going because, you know, you're just reading your experiences alone. It's just like, you know, you know, like I there's no there's really no there's no excuse for me not to to make it if I don't as long as I keep pushing forward and. You know, like let me share this with you. If at some point you feel like, ah, I they're about that, you know, I'm I I'm had I've had almost the last one. You you have to come talk to me or call me or anybody else that's listening. Mm -hmm. Call me. Now let me tell you about somebody's even stronger personality, Dr. Henry Toms. He was at Penn State, and he had a and his dissertation father would say, oh, change this and change this paragraph and what have you. Henry went to him and said to him, I want to change my supervisor because I don't think you're interested in me. He had never had anybody confront him in that way. But see, that's Henry Thompson. Henry's about six something, okay? And he looks down over his glasses and, and looks down at you. And I don't know this guy, what he thought, but it, it the guy after that, he straightened up and, and he got out on time. But had he not had the um, tenacity, the courage to say, I don't think you're interested in me because you're not really reading the dissertation or really checking it. And what I tell people, when you choose the committee, look to see how long they keep something on their desk. How many months do they keep your dissertation on their desk before they pass it on to the next person? And how many have they graduated? You see schools where they bring so many blacks in. How many did they graduate? Mm -hmm. Not how many they brought in. How many did they graduate? That attrition rate is important. That's what you want to know. See, those are the things you want to know. So with all these experiences that I had, that's when I began to develop the philosophical aspects of cultural difference. That was to help me to understand them, myself, and others. 
Yeah. And I, and I feel like that's just a perfect transition to talk about that. You know, I feel like that's a perfect segue, you know, like I'm just looking at it right now. I really, you know, just how you just broke it down between Europeans, Africans, Asians, and Native Americans. And the one thing you mentioned as far as the logic, that you don't know thinking and that kind of like, just like, you know, opened my mind, like, oh my gosh, like, like that, like, it's, it doesn't have to be either or kind of like, which is like European dichotomous. And that's more of the American Westernized thinking, but it could be and or both two halves of the same, of, of the same whole. And it's just like, and even just like, even casual conversation what I have with my friends, I'm like, why can't it be both? And just like, my friend's like, it's like, it's like an error just happened in their brain. It's just like, it's like, yeah, why can't? And it's just like so many things in life, it can be both. And like just just that that little shift in how I look at things is just like wow you know things can be both it doesn't have to be good or bad like why like it it is it, it can be both you know so I like just just seeing that you know um, another thing was talking about uh, where is it um, uh, where is it I can't. So uh, I have a I have a person in my cohort, and he's Middle Eastern, and he talks about how his culture they're collectivistic. You know what I'm saying? A collectivistic uh, culture versus how um, Europeans are typically like individualistic, especially here in America is more individualistic. So even just that mindset of how like you navigate within your community can definitely can definitely impact you know how you navigate life. You know how um, you know the African proverb uh, takes community. Uh, no, it takes a village to raise a child. Or if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That 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 that's that sense of unity, that sense of group, uh, uh, group cohesion, that group collectiveness is just like it's so interesting how different cultures view and value those kind of things. And um, I really appreciate how you just broke it down from from those ethnic groups because we think it's all the same, but there's so many different types of. Uh, thinking and viewpoints on how they view certain things, you know, how they view their logic, how they view uh, the, uh, the, 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 epistemi- uh, the epistemology, the, I don't know if I'm saying it right, the axiology, 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 you know, like that, it, you would think like, oh yeah, like everybody thinks like that, but no, far from it. And I feel like, um, especially you being just a black man, but studied all over, done work all over. Like, I feel like being culturally culturally competent is something that's just it 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 is it, just normal because you you were you were so you were all you were all over you 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 embraced so many different cultures even like um you know your children you know you said uh, your son is uh is married to a, a Japanese woman Chinese he lives in Shanghai you know a Chinese exactly so it's just like wow just being in Europe you know having your your blood your bloodline connected to, to, um, to, to Asia, you know, being black, being in America, it's just like so many different, so being culturally competent, I feel like it's just amplified, at least, at least in your perspective, because you, you've interacted with so many. So it's, it's really interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to uh, share with you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, before, before we wrap this up, do you have anything else you want to, you want to share? Like, you know, this is, this is, this is history right here. You know, we're, we're going to post this up. Uh, anything else? Any 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 last any last gems that you well, want to share? You, you covered the one that was the uh, the one with the General Motors situation. Mm-hmm. 
um, I had come back, I had, um, my dissertation is on apprenticeship programs. I had taken an American test, helped to translate it, the Gottfried General Aptitude Test Battery, helped to translate it into German, and I was establishing German norms for uh, German apprentices, and they're 14 years old. So you're comparing a test by the Germans that have given them, and you're taking an American test that was given to um, an adult carpenter. And the Germans have lots of tests that they give a 14-year-old to say, you should enter carpentry. And now, these are seasoned carpenters. Does this test that you've been giving, is there a correlation between what we establish as a carpenter's thought processes and skills and what you say this young boy, 14 years of age, is going to have to do for the rest of his life? So the correlations were high. And I was very happy about it. This man in Flint wants to set up this program on apprenticeship. Now on the phone, you know, Dr. Nichols is not identifiable. <laughs> okay. And if it must be necessary, I can, of course, do a little code switching. And yep. it sounds just a bit different, you know. <laughs> it's all part of it. <laughs> all the game is part of the game. Okay. <laughs> so... I didn't do that with him, wasn't necessary. And I went up there and he was a little cool. And then when we interviewed, he find I'm, I'm excited, you know, I want the job. I'm going to create apprenticeship programs with the high school, you know, got black and white high schools up there. And you're gonna develop apprentices that will come into the factory from their apprenticeship program and doing different things in the factory. And the college students, you. You take them out to different field experiences and then you bring them back. Okay, set it all up. I know how to do it. I said, well, what, what do you need? I mean, have, have I got something? What else do you want? And that's when he looked at me and he said, you have everything I want, more than I could have hoped for. But you know, you should not have applied. You're a Negro. And that to me was the... Uh, the apex of the reality, if you will. Uh -huh. Like, what else? There's nothing else. So my question is then, what is the difference between this guy and Nichols? What, what, what is his, what value system does he have that he would rather lower standards, take less than, than to take the best and utilize that? And then that's when you see the object as the highest value. Because if he holds on to the object, the job, there's nothing I can do. So from that point on, I do more industrial, more clinical psychology. Taught, I went to the Minninger Foundation, which was the apex at that time of psychology, of psychiatry and psychology, because they bring patients in from Calif uh, from Hollywood and so on, because they didn't want people around them to see they were in therapy. So they were kind of hiding out in Topeka, Kansas at the Minninger Foundation. I was on staff there. Now, one of my older colleagues, who was 10 years older than I was, had just graduated a year earlier than I did. He was now at the Kansas Neurological Institute. He was in charge of the psychology department and he asked me to join him. Uva lived in a six-room apartment, a flat, furnished. I finally got 
a three-room basement apartment unfurnished. And I paid more per uh, month rent than he did because mm -hmm. nobody wanted to sell to anybody Black in Topeka at that time outside of the ghetto. Okay, there were no houses available and nobody wanted to rent. You could see something and want to rent it and you couldn't get it. How could you rent something? You'd have to rent a room in, somebody house, in somebody's house. As an adult male, you're living in somebody's room in their bed, one of the bedrooms in their house. You have to share the kitchen, the bathroom, rather than your own apartment. So again, these are things that happen, but you have to realize that things are changing. They're not changing as fast as they should, but uh, we have to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. That's my, uh, I guess if there was one thing that I had to share, it is that we, you must never give up. You must keep pushing and you'll get to your victory. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Dr. Nichols. You know, keep pushing, you'll never give up. And just, just listening to your story and reading about it, you know, it's, it's an ode to perseverance, not giving up. And, you know, that's that's a journey in, in the program, getting a doctorate, you know, in itself, never giving up, you know, dealing with those trials and tribulations. Obviously, there's going to be different levels to it. Obviously, um, when you were in school, it's completely different than how it, how it is when I'm in school. Um, things change, but not as the, the change that we want isn't as much as we hope for. But just I, I appreciate that. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Nichols, for joining us here for the Simba Simi podcast. Um, again, my name is Gag Boyer. I'm the current Eastern Graduate Representative. I'm here with Dr. Edwin Nichols, um, Leadership and Development Co-Chair of the, of the National ABCI Board, one of the ABCI founders, um, clinical industrial psychologist, um, veteran as well, you know, <laughs> And, uh, and having the paradigm, the, philosoph the philosophical aspects of cultural differences. So um, thank you again for joining us. And Dr. Nichols, we will continue to stay in touch. And uh, thank you so much for taking time. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.